HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And today, I am very pleased to have a special guest. She is Ashley Rose Young, and Ashley is the food historian of the, well, she's the historian of the American Food History Project at the Smithsonian National Museum of America. She holds a PhD in history from Duke and is historian, uh, as we just said, and at the, at the Smithsonian, she hosts original cooking demonstrations called Cooking Up History, a monthly series of live cooking demos that explore American history through food tradition. What else? And she also helps curate the, all the exhibits that are constantly coming up, but we're going to have her tell us a little bit about that. And I found out a little bit more about what Ashley's been doing, aside from her work at the Smithsonian. I happened upon it on a YouTube video, of all things. You're going to hear about that, too, because it's all about the forgotten street cries of food vendors and her work, particularly, of food vendors in New Orleans. But first, let me welcome Ashley. Welcome so much, Ashley, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. Well, tell me, you know, this whole American Food Project at the Smithsonian, it's a relatively new 
function, a relatively new part of the museum. Tell me a little bit about it and about what you do there. So, as you said, I'm the historian for the American Food History Project, and part of my work is curatorial, meaning we bring in objects, we collect oral histories pertaining to chefs, home cooks, food entrepreneurs, and then part of my work is public programming. I love being up on our kitchen demonstration stage right in the heart of the museum, and I get to do live cooking demonstrations with guest chefs who we bring into the museum once a month. And we asked them to bring in historic recipes to our museum, and we decide to prepare them on stage. And we use that food as a lens into American history. And we explore topics ranging from recent migration and the influence of people moving into the United States. We explore presidential histories. We look at the entrepreneurship of enslaved Africans working in the antebellum South, for example. We really cover so many topics through these dishes. And it's exciting for our visitors who happen to stumble upon these live cooking demonstrations at the museum. Well, that's what I was going to say. Do they? Is that indeed what they do? stumble upon them because obviously the Smithsonian is so well known and, and tourists who go to DC all you know make a stop there to see well amongst other things to me what's very important Julia Child's kitchen which is housed there in in the Smithsonian that section of the Smithsonian Institute so do you is there a lot of advance notice and advertising that goes on to these these programs and these cooking demonstrations well I try to use my Twitter account so you can follow me at Ashley Rose Young just my full name so I'm always spreading the news on Twitter about our upcoming cooking demonstrations but you can also go to our website or Google Cooking Up History Smithsonian, and the first link will bring you to our webpage with the full schedule of events. Uh, We're finishing up 2018, but we're about to launch into 2019, and you'll see those monthly demonstrations with descriptions there. But I wanted to go back for a quick second to talk about Julia Child's Kitchen, Uh because it is such an important aspect of the American Food History Project. Julia Child's Kitchen came to our museum almost 20 years ago. One of my senior colleagues, Paula Johnson, as well as as Steve Velasquez, who are two curators at our museum, they were part of the team that brought Julia Child's Cambridge, Massachusetts Kitchen to the Smithsonian, unpacked it in front of public audiences, and just created a space for Americans to come and honor Julia Child's legacy. Yeah, they recreated her space and 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 created a new space as well. Exactly. Yeah. So now we've moved Julia Child's kitchen into our food exhibition. It's actually called Food, Transforming the American <laughs> Table. And we are currently, our curatorial team is working on giving that exhibition a refresh. So Paula, Steve and I, as well as my colleague, Teresa McCullough, who's the historian of the Brewing History Initiative at the uh, museum. We are going out into the field and we are interviewing chefs, collecting their stories, acquiring new objects, and we're giving the food exhibition a wonderful kind of, uh, just a different story. We're, We're really emphasizing, for example, one of the exhibition cases I'm working on is on the history of migrants in the United States since 1950 and how their food entrepreneur entrepreneurism rather, as restaurateurs, as chefs, as home cooks, how that is transforming what we eat, what a diverse American population is eating at home and in restaurants. So that's been a really rewarding experience. And it all ties back to Julia Child's kitchen. She was someone who really wanted to use food 
to build bridges between people that she may not have known otherwise. Food as a form of culinary diplomacy, if you will, a way to really foster a connection with someone through the common act of sharing a meal. And we really try to embrace that with the food exhibition at our museum. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, that just, and, and look, she took it to the broader audience on television. I mean, come on, that was, you know, that was so she was such a pioneer in that way as well. It's a, it's a wonderful project and I, I, applaud you all for the work that you're doing on it and those of you who are making a pilgrimage to Washington DC our capital to and going to the Smithsonian do not miss a cooking up history demonstration and I'm sure that it's it's always entertaining I look online all the time and I see you up there with all the different chefs cooking up all kinds of different dishes and yes. it looks wonderful I have not attended yet I will have to well, attend one of those demonstrations always an opportunity and the great thing is they are free and open to the public so great. you can come in our, to our museum and really witness a magical moment a magical 45 minutes of talking about history cooking on stage kind of like what we do right here right, like what we do right here it's so fun so please join us at the national museum of american history we we welcome you to to join us all right well on for you a more personal level i would say well how did you get into this whole thing anyway and you've kind of been enmeshed in this whole food surrounding area and history for quite some time as a historian in, in, in your work, um, in your studies. But you've been involved in a project that's really quite, quite unique and quite interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. So do you want to know a little bit about my research in New Orleans or a little bit about my family background leading the me to research, my research? I think we can skip we skip the family background because I know it's very interesting. You can give you know a, a quickie on that with the with the food store, but we'll go and then we'll go right into your your studies and your project. Yes. Yeah, so go back to when I was three years old. My mother and my aunts owned and operated gourmet grocery food stores in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and this is a very important community space for Pittsburghers. But I grew up making pizzas, baking pies, you know, cookies, you name it cutting up cheeses for our artisan cheese department way before people even knew what brie cheese really was. In fact, my aunts in the 1980s called it bry cheese because they really <laughs> had no idea what that cheese was. But there were individuals in Pittsburgh who had lived abroad and really wanted those kind of artisan products. And that's the niche that my family's business fulfilled. Um, and my dad is a historian. So if you think, how do you bring oh, match them up. a food entrepreneur <laughs> and a historian together, you get a food historian and that is me. Um, but my passions in food history really ignited when I was an undergrad at Yale University and I had the opportunity to intern at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. And it was there on my first day of my internship that my mentor, Liz Williams, who's the executive director of the museum, she handed me a historic cookbook, a Creole cookbook that had been published in the early 1900s. And she said, this is a primer of Creole culture. Read this to get a sense of how people understand food history in the city. And I opened up this cookbook, the Picayune's Creole cookbook. Ah, Picayune's, and yeah. there was an image of an African-American cook in the frontispiece, and she was holding this giant soup tureen, a very heavy soup tureen. And I was struck by this image. And then I started reading the introductory essay. 
And these themes of nostalgia really started to come out. So this is a cookbook that been, had been authored by a white author who had published anonymously. And you have this sense of this individual's craving for an antebellum South, of a time that this person perceived as a better time than the current period. And there was language that was used to describe the labor of African-American women in a way that was, it felt off. And I didn't know Southern history well enough at that time to really understand the racial politics embedded in this cookbook. And so I decided to study this cookbook and others of that time in my senior thesis, actually as an undergrad. And I started to see how cookbooks would erase the incredible entrepreneurial activities of African-American women, of other minority groups who really contributed to Creole cuisine in New Orleans, shaping its culture, shaping the tastes, providing and growing the fruits and vegetables that were then used in these recipes. And so I wanted to do the work to start to bring their histories to life, these forgotten histories that really are not present in the archives compared to the histories of white chefs or white cookbook authors. So I then went on to grad school at Duke University and I continued to study these Atlantic world influences coming from West Africa, coming from the Caribbean and France and Latin America, how they converged in New Orleans, a major port city in the antebellum period, to create what we know as Creole cuisine today. And I just became fascinated with the entrepreneurial activities of people that we don't often see represented in history books, particularly street food vendors right. and food vendors in the municipal markets of New Orleans. So, right. And we're talking about people who, and you have, have written about too, were kind of the, given this opportunity, their own, I mean, they created this opportunity for themselves. They were otherwise disenfranchised from, from what was going on in the regular economic food economy and this, they formed their own method of, and means of, of selling food, right? Exactly. You know, I'm really interested in these ideas of belonging, people's connections to a community. And so often, even today, we define belonging in terms of citizenship, mm -hmm. the ability to vote, the ability to own property. But if you go back to antebellum New Orleans or even colonial New Orleans, enslaved and free African-Americans did not have the same access to the vote and property as right. free whites. And so their notion of belonging had to be different. It had to be an alternative modes of belonging. And I really explore how their role in the local food economy as individuals who sold produce in the streets when elites were focusing on big agriculture, African-Americans and other disenfranchised groups, women and recent migrants from Europe, found a niche for themselves in the local food economy to actually feed the city itself, not to supply, you know, big ag to countries across the Atlantic. Right. And so that's what the kind of area I really study, the streets, the alleyways, and the food that was perfumed with, you know, the dirt, the soot, the smog of the city, and the labor, the, the ingenious labor of these individuals, and the strategies they employed to build their business networks even in the face of incredible disenfranchisement, even in the face of the horrendous slave society, the, the very restricting, violent slave society of New Orleans, there were spaces in public, in the city streets, where they could build community and build business despite those other barriers. And not, I mean, street vendors were in pretty much every city around the world, 
But here they were, and, and you associate them maybe with what was, you know, like the street food. I think of New York. They were selling oysters, you know, selling ice cream, selling, you know. But here they were, I mean, they were the main market. They sold everything, right? Fruits, vegetables. Yeah, it really depends on what time you're looking at. So I study the 19th century, the long 19th century, and the demographics of vendors change over time. But if we're looking at the colonial colonial period and the early antebellum period, the majority of vendors were African-American. Some of those vendors had a, a good amount of agency. They were often, in New Orleans, there was a code that governed slavery, that enabled many African-Americans Sundays off to use that time to do with what they wanted. Now, Mm -hmm. not every individual was able to take advantage because there was, again, certain white slave owners who would prevent individuals from, from exercising that right. But for those who could go into the city on Sunday, they would be able to sell the produce that they grew in the garden plots near their lodgings, and they could actually accumulate profits according to the local law of New Orleans at that time. And so you actually see in some cases that, you know, these street vendors who weren't supposed to have any influence in New Orleans, they weren't technically supposed to be empowered. They were able to find a way through the local economy to really shape what people ate, how much it cost, they shaped taste preferences, and they also adjusted what they sold and what they grew according to what customers wanted. So you see them as very savvy business entrepreneurs. And in some rare cases, these individuals over decades were able to skim off enough profits to actually purchase their own freedom Freedom, or the freedom of a family member. Now, I also want to contextualize this within slave society, where many slave owners would purchase licenses for enslaved individuals to vend surplus produce that was made on the plantation. And then they would take the profits. And then they would take the profits. And, you know, depending on the year, I think in the 1830s, those annual licenses could be upwards of $400, which was a very, that was very expensive. That was a lot of money. Only elite whites or elite plantation owners at that time could afford that kind of license. But then again, there was that loophole in the law in New Orleans where enslaved Africans could also skim off some of those profits and keep them for themselves. It wasn't a lot of money, but with, again, decades of work that could accumulate to something like freedom. Not always, but in some rare cases. And I think that that your choice, how did you choose to focus on New Orleans? Because I think it's such a good microcosm of what, what was going on that antebellum period. And, you know, to that, Charleston, a lot of areas, but New Orleans in particular. How did you focus on on this, these vendors um, in New Orleans in particular? It's a combination of factors, and the first one being the fact that I landed there for an internship and just began to discover the wealth of information about the food culture of the city. I mean, people have been obsessed with New Orleans food culture for a very long time, and that shows up in the archive in postcards and diary entries. Food vendors are talked about in the local newspaper in the 1840s, the 1850s, and beyond. Uh, And the city itself had a really interesting municipal market culture. So markets that, you know, where you would vend uh, fresh produce, meat, and whatnot, In New Orleans, there was nearly a market for every single neighborhood Mm. in the city. So this this kind of market system grew throughout the 19th century and peaked around 1911. It was one of the most expansive food markets 
systems in the country, right? Mm. And so there's a lot of literature. There's a lot of local law. You have to regulate the food that's being sold there. So for a historian, this is a lot of fodder to work with. Right. You get to learn about what's being sold in the market, how it's being regulated, how the vendors felt about selling food in the market or not. And another reason I chose New Orleans was that it was a city that was so important in the antebellum period. Between 1800 and 1840, the city went from being uh, 10,000, you know, small, small city on the outskirts of European empire, to 1840 is 500,000 people. It grew 50 fold and 500,000 placed it as the third largest city in the United States at that time. Um, And so it was a major port. It was a major port of entry for migrants, both forced and free migrants coming in. And, you know, it's just this place that it's always captivated the imaginations of Americans. And so you have these really interesting, almost ethnographic writings about the city, descriptions of the street vendors crying out in Creole or French or German or or Spanish. You have these really detailed accounts of what the city smelled like, what the streets looked like. And that is just, that's the bread and butter of my project. Now, you always have to read against the grain a little bit Mm -hmm. because those those descriptions are often written by middle class or wealthy whites who were able to travel to the city and and make commentary on, on what the city looked like. So I try to read against the grain to get at the history of the people who are actually laboring in the street, the people who are actually selling food in the street or in one of the municipal markets. Well, I thought it was really interesting. I was reading some of the... Um the writing that you've done on this research project, and hopefully we're going to see something big one of these days soon come out of it. Um, but uh, it was helpful for me to, you know, learn some of the background. And, I, and then I read that, well, of course, they wanted to clean up the city's act a lot, right? So there were laws that were passed that said, oh, no, you can't sell on the street. That's too messy. We can't have that. But of course, those laws were also written with loopholes so that because the, the white the white elite who were writing the laws wanted the street vendors there. Is that correct? So it's a very complicated history. In a way, that is correct. And I'm actually in New York City right now because I'm about to participate in an academic workshop all about street food, both both in the past and in the present. And I've been thinking so much about regulating food vendors. And you see it in antebellum New Orleans, you see it in modern day Bangkok, you see it in Vancouver today. There are laws in place to 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 regulate the food economy of, of a visible food economy, you know, whether it's a street food truck or whether it's an itinerant vendor. And, you know, the parallels are so interesting when you go back to antebellum New Orleans. And here's an example in 1841. Now, remember, this is just as the city exploded into 500,000 people living in this space, third largest city in the United States. And this is a time when many migrants are coming from Germany and Ireland and other places in Europe. And when they arrived here, some had family connections and were able to kind of embed themselves into the local economy and the local culture. But others came over from Europe without any support. And street food vending served as a kind of economic toehold for them. When you're a street vendor, there's a lot of low barriers to entry. You don't have to get a brick and mortar uh, location. You don't have a storefront. Often you didn't have the ability to even access that property. And so the streets were a space for you to actually start accumulating funds to build your business. And 
At the time in New Orleans, especially among the elites who had lived there for many generations, they were there was a great sense of xenophobia. They didn't mm -hmm. want these poor whites, if they were even considered white at that time, to be moving throughout their neighborhoods, to be knocking on doors and crying out about the wares they were selling. In fact, they were called, quote unquote, a nuisance in the local paper when an alderman in the city actually proposed to ban street food vending in the second municipality of New Orleans. And this was an area that was known as the American sector. <laughs> it was populated by many American migrants who came to the city after it came under U.S. jurisdiction in the early 1800s. And so there was this idea that, no, we don't want these people to be in our space. We don't want them. We don't consider them to be citizens. They're not behaving, quote unquote, like citizens. Now, what's interesting is that law was passed. So there was a ban on street food in the American sector, yet there were loopholes in place to protect certain kinds of vendors. And one of the vendors, or one of the groups of vendors who were protected, were those who sold prepared foods. And legally, throughout uh, New Orleans's history, those were often enslaved African vendors who sold ice creams, who made pineapple beer, who sold prepared foods in the streets. And those individuals had a loophole in this 1841 law to continue to vend in the American sector. So perhaps there was an acknowledgement by the city council that these vendors, these African-American vendors who had been there for generations, were a critical part of the local right. food culture and economy. Right. Now, they're not considered citizens by any means, but I think there is this, this recognition that they mattered, that they had become indispensable in the local food economy. And that's where my argument really comes out, that food entrepreneurship was really a pathway to... Uh, influencing politics in the city. Those enslaved vendors didn't have the right to vote, but they were so indispensable that local law protected their entrepreneurial endeavors yes. and protected their interests. So it's the labor of the city, labor of working as a street food vendor that enabled them to influence yeah, the politics. That's, that's very interesting that food, I mean, food more and more when I look at different historical periods, I mean, food is political. Oh, you know, so much so over in that. Well, we have, there's, there's a whole other faction of the street vending that I want to get to, but we have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have a little treat about some of these street vendors and their cries. So stay tuned. Have you been asked to bring a dish to the Thanksgiving fest? Hmm, maybe it doesn't have to be the old standard sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top. It don't get me wrong, that's good. However, we're all trying to cut back on a lot of the sugar and the sweetness. So I thought, why not make a crunchy sweet potato gratin? Something a little different to add to the table. Slice up your sweet potatoes, toss them in some butter, Add a little maple syrup, if you'd like, not much. And then sprinkle some of Bob's Red Mill Classic Honey Oat Granola over the top, or the Cinnamon Raisin Granola. That will give a little fruit to it as well. Believe me, I think everyone's going to dig into this Thanksgiving dish. Don't forget, you can get all these products of the granola products at bobsredmill.com. And don't forget to use Taste 25 for 25% off your order. 
Lemons, Tempa dollar. Who wants lemons? I got lemons. Who wants apples? Who wants apples? I got green apples. I got red apples. Who wants oranges? We got oranges. You can get a bag. Five for a dollar. Get them now. Get them now. Get them now. Who wants more? Horseradish, horseradish. Good old tongue never lies. Grind your horseradish for your wives. Horseradish, horseradish, horseradish. And there you have it. That was, <laughs> what a performance. That was my trusted engineer, Noam, uh, doing the apples and, and the apples and lemons cries or oranges. or <laughs> And my guest, Ashley Rose Young. What a, what a beautiful cry voice you have. Let's talk about these cries. Um, yes, we always have heard about or have hear the old, you know, the old nursery rhymes about street vendors and their cries, but these cries are largely forgotten, and you don't hear them that much anymore. Tell me all about this. Right, right. So, my interest in street vendor cries ties into my early travels um, as an undergraduate. So I actually was in a singing group at Yale, and I love singing a cappella, and I was part of the Yale Glee Club. And I had the opportunity with those groups to travel around the world and to go to countries like uh, Singapore, Egypt, India, Italy, Sicily in particular, Japan, uh, Peru, for example. And in these countries, I my eyes were opened up to this lively food market scene, a scene that doesn't necessarily exist in the same way in the United States anymore, but it's a scene that existed in our past. And when I was in Singapore, when I was in Sicily, you just hear these beautiful, often melodic, sometimes uh, loud and ruckus street cries, these descriptions of people selling certain foods. Maybe it's a prepared food. Maybe it's fresh produce. Maybe it's horseradish. Maybe it's horseradish. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I became fascinated and I started seeing references in my work in the New Orleans archives of street vendors and the sonic quality of their street vendor cries. And often these... uh, Individuals, like I mentioned, there's those ethnographic writers who would head to the city and make observations of the local culture. And one of the things that they always fixated on, especially after the Civil War, were street vendors and their cries. They would actually, in their diaries, in their publications, try to record the cries. And sometimes they would use little hyphens, dashes, capital letters to give you a sense of the kind of timbre of these cries or uh, the melody of them, but that was difficult when you didn't have sheet music or a recording. And then in some cases, actually, there were ethnographic writers who went to the city and actually put into notation on sheet music, music notation, right? They the did melodies <laughs> associated with some of these street vendor cries. Yeah. Now, obviously, not everyone was singing an aria when they were talking <laughs> about their their wares, but some individuals had this artistic melodic quality. It was a savvy business tech re- technique, really, if you think about it. If you're watching TV today, what do you hear when you're listening to a commercial? There's a jingle associated with that television commercial or that radio announcement. Where do you think the origins of that are are located? It's in the tradition of street vendor cries, which 
you know, tale as old as time. Street vendor cries have been a primary source of advertising your wares uh, for millennia. Yeah. And so they're in the archive. Really, you just have to look for them. It's, uh, that's, it's just so amazing. Every now and then you'll still hear, in certain cities you'll hear, like I say, Charleston, they, maybe there's still a few um, vendors wondering if it's just for the tourists' amusement or if they, you know, they're really still crying, you know, using the cries to actually right. sell the wares. Um, baseball parks, you know, hot dogs, peanuts, get your peanuts, get your hot pe- I mean, you think about that. Those are all cries. And it's, as you just said, it's a jingle. It's a way of advertising. What do I have to sell? And it's, uh, and Noam, you can chime in. The, yeah, the, yours I, I, came I was from? just going to say, I actually worked two games in Philadelphia selling beer. And I almost, it basically was like stand-up comedy because I would have this delivery that was slow but would make people laugh. And I would say, who wants a Coke? Cold Miller Light! And, <laughs> and people would laugh. And, and buy know. a beer. Yes, they'd buy a beer. It was good fun. It was good fun. Good. That was the point. It, it's just, it's fascinating because you don't really think, of, I mean, what we, one, doesn't usually think of, of you know, all those cries. What was all that cacophony about? What was, it was, the streets must have been very noisy then. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, you know, there are moments where I wish I could step back in time to hear what it was like to have hundreds of vendors in New Orleans starting to cry out at dawn. This was, you were woken up by the street, street vendor vendors. cry. Yeah. Uh, that was the kind of, there's a, a historian named Mark Smith who talks about church bells as a way of organizing life, city life. Yeah. And I make the argument that street cries are like that. I mean, they, they kick off your day. You're going to hear them throughout the day. And as sun, the sun sets and as business closes down, they dwindle away. And yeah. it was a way of demarcating time. Uh, you and know, if you wanted to get the freshest of whatever the vendor was selling, you knew he or she was right there on the street. You better rush out and get it before exactly. they're gone, right? <laughs> exactly. And so there are individuals who have a fond memory of street vendor cries. I ask people all the time, especially those who grew up in cities like Baltimore or Charleston and New Orleans, you know, do you remember the street cries? And then they just start singing. You know, maybe it's a Lyft driver and he's going, Ragman, Ragman. And he goes and <laughs> sings this, this song, this memory from their youth that maybe they haven't thought about in 20, 30, 40 years. And it just comes out. Yeah. It's, it's a very important part of urban life, or it was anyway. And you know, my project is a way to really reflect on that, to think back on the power of these street vendor cries. It's 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 wonderful and and wonderfully uh, entertaining as well. Um, I have I'm heard reproductions of a lot of the British, and then if you go to any old um, period pieces, you know, and and listen to, they will always have a street vendor crying in the background as part of the you know the background scene. And that was very popular throughout, you know, the early English period. As you said earlier, when you and I were speaking, probably back to the 1600s, there were a lot of street cars vendors. Now, in um, Asia, there's a. It's very popular, and it's it's current. Hanoi has, I think, some of the more colorful. I read was reading some of the more colorful um, street vendors' cries. 
happening. Yes. I mean, honestly, it's you step out of the bounds of the United States and you are often going to find yourself in a place where you can hear a street vendor cry. When I lived in London for a while, I would go on to the subway there and or the tube, as they would call it, and there'd be people selling fresh produce right at the entrance of the tube and they'd be crying out about the berries that they had that came <laughs> in from the countryside. And, you know, when I lived, uh, or actually I didn't live, when I visited Sicily, Sicily has a very strong street food culture Mm -hmm. history. I mean, one that was very influenced um, by Arab culture, actually. Sicily was an Arab emirate, you know, hundreds of years ago. And the Arab, when it was an Arab emirate, its food culture really exploded. Its market culture became really robust. And some of the street vendor cries, they still sing them today about Sicilian style street pizza. And it's funny. You know, they're saying, oh my goodness, this is you know, when they're crying out in this regional Sicilian dialect, they're talking about how the pizza's covered with dust and, you know, they'll wipe off the dust for you before they sell you the pizza. And it's a joke about the kind of urban quality, the urban terroir of of street foods. Like, right. yeah, it's going right. to be perfumed with a little bit of smog and dust and soot, but that's the that's part of the charm and the appeal. Everyone has their own personal ditty to sell their own personal wares, exactly. whatever exactly. it takes, right? Well, this is this is such an important part of of your exploration in street vending. Um, well, how important was it in terms of uh, one's success? I would argue it was very important, and I think it's. I like to take street vendor cries seriously. They're often, the sources that I use were often written after the Civil War. So again, there's this kind of romantic nostalgia for the antebellum past, often felt and experienced by people living outside of the South. And in this time period after the Civil War, say 1880s, the South's tourism industry really begins to grow. You have rail lines bringing people from the Midwest, from the Northeast, down into the South, and they're sold this vision of the like rural picturesque, the South before the Civil War, and it's a very problematic vision. And New Orleans, as a major city in the South, wasn't so much part of this rural picturesque, but it was exoticized. It was seen as this global city. You'll see references to New Orleans as the Paris of -hmm. America. And American tourists ventured there expecting to see a taste or to hear something that reminded them of places beyond U.S. borders. See, I always just... I always thought that that was more because of the language, the patois, or the, you know, the, the and part French that would you know be spoken. Um, exactly, the but, Haitian influence. You know, <laughs> here's an but. interesting story. So, you know, say you have a tourist coming in 1880 to the city, and they go to the French Quarter, right? And they're expecting to hear someone singing about "Cala Belle, Cala Toucho," you know, piping hot, sugary rice fritters. Come and get them, right? But what they would encounter in the French Quarter at that time were Sicilian migrants. And (laughs) these, you know, one of the largest Sicilian migrant populations lived in New Orleans, 1880 to 1910-ish. And they actually, their, their population was so robust in that area that colloquially some people called the French Quarter Little Palermo after Palermo, Sicily. And so these tourists were not expecting to hear Italian street cries or Sicilian dialect street cries. They were looking for the French. They were looking for the Creole Caribbean influence. And the literature they were reading really washed over or ignored the influence and the presence of Sicilian migrants in the city. So you have to be, 
you have to be aware that there was a particular kind of package being delivered <laughs> to Americans who wanted this nostalgia for the South. They wanted to experience something outside of the U.S. But that was a very tailored kind of vision yeah. that left out the histories of really important communities. Right. Well, you and I had spoken and referenced Justin Nystrom's book um, that he was on the show not long ago talking about the the uh, Sicilian influence in the exactly. Creole in the Creole establishment of their culture. Yeah. And that's that is it's just such a fascinating city. I just I think I want to get on a train yeah. and go on down. <laughs> it might be time. <laughs> but I also wanted to mention you asked um where Shrikra is important for these vendors. Right. And I really want to make the point for African American women who are free at this point, who continue to vend traditional street foods like kala, these sugary rice fritters, mm -hmm. or pralines, pralines these absolutely. delicious kind yeah. of uh, caramelized sugar and pecan candies. These were commonly sold throughout the 19th century in New Orleans. And the individuals selling them, like I said, African-American women, would play off of the expectations of tourists. They actually wore antebellum era and style clothing, knowing that tourists were looking for that kind of experience, looking for that quote-unquote authentic encounter with the antebellum South. And obviously the city was actually modernizing fairly rapidly at that time. But these women, these vendors, were savvy business entrepreneurs, and they knew what their customers were looking for. So they played to that. And they sang out street, street cries in Creole Patois, in French, uh, to play to the desires of these uh, tourists because they were business Businesswomen. They wanted to make a profit. They needed to feed their families. They needed to, to make a living, and that's how they did it. And when, what, what a wonderful, what a wonderful treat for us to learn about it from you. And I thank you so much for all your research. One little line more you have to sing for us. Sure. To close. What do you? Got? I will sing. Pralines, pralines for your sweet toothy, for your sweet toothy. Pralines, pralines. Marvelous. That, again, is Ashley Rose Young, and she is the, the historian of the American Food Project at the Smithsonian um, Institute, the Smithsonian um, Museum. And this has been her rendition of, of vintage street cries from New Orleans, particularly. And thank you so much, Ashley. It has been a real treat, a real pleasure. Thank you, Linda. And, of course, this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks so much to my trusty engineer, Noam, also, and his marvelous street cries. We appreciated that, too. And, again, the show has been produced and recorded at Heritage Radio Network Studios. And please visit us online at heritageradionetwork.org and consider giving a donation. A small one will take anything just to keep our voices on the air. Thanks again. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.